Well, we're glad to welcome you here again to Graceway Baptist Church. And we're going over on Sunday evenings what we would be doing in Sunday school. And of course, we miss being together and we do appreciate you uh, viewing this. Thank you so much for <clears throat> tuning into this. During the month of April, with it being the Easter month, a lot of times we like to focus on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I thought we would go just a step further because the coming of Christ and everything that he did, it's kind of a package deal. You have to, in order to have atonement, you have to have a perfect sacrifice. And of course, only God is perfect. So God came in human flesh, and there you have the incarnation, the putting on of flesh, is what that means, of God. And that's what happened when we talk about Christmas, the incarnation, the coming of Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. But you can't stop there because... The birth of a baby doesn't save anybody. It doesn't do anything for anybody except make a nice story and maybe give us some time for some celebration and exchanging presents and singing songs. But it doesn't, <clears throat> pardon me, do anything for our life or our eternity. So then we have the life of Jesus Christ. And we read uh, a little bit about his boyhood, going to the temple and his parents leaving him there. And uh, there's very little that we know about any of that but it's all important. And then we have, of course, the public ministry of Jesus Christ and uh, leading up to the point of his betrayal and arrest and his trial and then crucifixion. But the Bible says in the book of Romans, if we're saved by his death, we're saved much more by his life. And we can take that to uh, uh, his eternal life after his resurrection. That certainly would be true because a dead Savior doesn't save anyone. But maybe it also is referring to the fact that from the birth of Christ until his crucifixion, he lived a sinless life. Can you imagine a perfect life, somebody who never thought anything that was wrong, was never motivated by anything that was wrong, who never did anything that was wrong, who never forgot to do anything that was right. I mean, it makes your, makes your brain hurt to try to think about that. And that's the way Jesus lived because when he went to the cross... He had to be the unblemished sacrifice that is pictured in the old sacrificial system. He is, after all, as John the Baptist says, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He had to be a qualified sacrifice. And then when he died on the cross, <clears throat> there he was, pardon me, <clears throat> the innocent bearing the sins of the guilty. Think about that. The innocent. There's a, there's a part of us that we don't like it when we are blamed for something or punished for something that we didn't do. No little kid likes it in the family and no one likes it if you were taken into the criminal justice system and you were innocent, you wouldn't want to be uh, incarcerated or executed or anything like that or pay a fine even because it wouldn't be right. And yet that's what Jesus did and he did that for us out of his great love for us. And he bore the wrath of God, the anger of God, the punishment of God on the cross in our place for our sin. They took him down off of the cross and they put him in a tomb. Very unusual for a crucified person to be put into a tomb. That would have been something that would have been uh, very surprising and very shocking to anyone who paid attention. In fact, Isaiah said that he, uh, Messiah would be killed or um, with the transgressors in his death, but he would be with the rich in his burial. 
Well, that's because generally they would leave crucified victims on a cross, sometimes for days after their death, to just let them rot. And it would be gruesome and it would be horrible. And anybody who walked by would be terrified of Roman crucifixion. And that was the way the Romans, of course, would try to control everything. And then when they did finally take them down from the cross, or if sometimes they would just fall off, they would take them and bury them in a mass grave, an unmarked grave. And to a Jew, that was a horrible thing to have the body desecrated and to have it um, unentombed and uh, forgotten. And so that's the way they did it. And yet this man, when he died, they took him off of the cross, they cared for his body, they wrapped it, they put the spices on it, and then they laid him in a tomb. And it was the tomb of a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. It was a tomb that had never been used before. And we look at all of that and find it kind of interesting. They would have found that shocking that someone executed as Jesus was would be treated with such respect, kindness, and even honor after he had died. Well, we know that that's a part of it. The Apostle Paul says the gospel is that Jesus died and he was buried according to the scriptures. It's a part of prophecy and a part of God's plan. But even at that, without the whole story, what good does it do us? It's maybe an example and maybe it launches some kind of a movement, but it doesn't really do anything for us. But on the third day, Jesus arose from the dead. And we all know the prophecies about that and what that means. He is the conqueror. He is the one who has conquered death, hell, and the grave. And someone said that if the death of Jesus would be like us being at the grocery store, you hand the uh, clerk the money, that was the death of Christ. The clerk gives you back the receipt showing that you paid for your groceries. That's the resurrection. That was God giving us the receipt saying, I have accepted the sacrifice of my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But let's just say the story ends there. And he uh, lives and he walks around and, uh, you know, he's living in Jerusalem and I suppose he would still be there today. What would that do for us? Well, there would be some shrines that would be set up and there would be pilgrimages to see the Lord Jesus and that's all, excuse me, well and good. But the Bible says that 40 days after his resurrection that he ascended and he ascended to the right hand of God the Father. Now this was prophesied in several places. Even way back in Isaiah's prophecy, it talks about this suffering servant who was despised and rejected, who was punished by God, that uh, he also was going to have there some future aspects written in that chapter of Isaiah. You ought to look at it sometime. It's very interesting. What did it mean? That Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, he still had a ministry to perform. And Jesus had told his disciples, especially in the 14th chapter of John, as well as some others, that it was better for them if he would go away. Go away to what? And go away where? Well, the ascension is the final chapter of the first incarnation of Jesus Christ, the first advent, pardon me, of Jesus Christ, when he was born, lived, died, was buried, resurrected, and then he ascended to the right hand of God the Father. So what is he doing up there? Is he just sitting, twiddling his thumbs? Is he tapping his foot, waiting impatiently for the 
uh, permission to come back to earth and finish all of the prophecies that he made because he is going to do that. Well, the Bible tells us several things that the Lord Jesus has done and is doing in his ascension. And so uh, we'll call this series for April, I Serve a Risen Savior, but it's more than just the fact that he came back from the dead. He is in heaven right now and he is doing some things for you and for me that are astounding and that are wonderful and are exciting. The old song says, this world is not my home, I'm only passing through. And we forget about that sometimes. We are temporarily here on earth, but we're eternally with the Lord in heaven. And because of his sacrifice, he makes heaven available to us. And because of his sacrifice, even while the Lord Jesus is in heaven, there are some things that he is doing and some things that are happening. Now, for some of you, you've heard all of this before and you know it, but let it just soak into your mind and let it nourish your soul. For some of you, maybe you've heard about these things, but you've never heard them put together or explained like this. Let it bless you to know your Lord is still thinking of you and He is still doing some things for you even though He is bodily in heaven today and uh, you are here on earth. But understand this. And maybe if you're a new believer, you've never heard any of this before. And uh, again, this is exciting to know about and I pray that you will take it to heart and certainly study it for yourself. So in the ascension, what, what in the world is happening and what does it mean? Well, you can, of course, read about it. Luke talked more about it than anyone else at the end of his gospel and at the beginning of his other book, the book of Acts. But we're going to focus in mainly in John chapter 14. I love that chapter. Let not your heart be troubled. Remember that? You believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus tells us those wonderful words. But he also gives us some clues. In uh, John 14, 2 and 3, notice what he is doing. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Here's where we find this key to the ascension. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So did you get that? The Lord Jesus is telling us that as he goes to heaven, the reason he is going away, the disciples wanted him to stay on earth forever. They didn't understand the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension. They didn't get all of that. And when Jesus talked about it, it kind of depressed them. He said, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God and believe in me because actually they're one. And he tells them what he is going to do. I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And this place for you is going to be in a wonderful and marvelous place called heaven, here referred to as the Father's house. Now there's some discrepancy about the translation of the word mansion. In the Greek, the word is just simply dwelling place. So we could look at it like this. In the Father's house is a dwelling place for you. Now when we think about mansions, we think about you know, the big Beverly Hills mansions, and I'm going to have a mansion, you're going to have a mansion, and everybody's going to have a mansion, and we'll go back and forth to different mansions. But this is more of a Jewish context, that in the Jewish culture, people tended to live intergenerationally in one house. And there would be the patriarch of the family 
he would be the father and it would be known as the father's house. When a man would marry a, a wife, he would become betrothed to her and then there would be the formal engagement and then he would go away and he would go to prepare a place for his bride in the father's house. Maybe they would add on a room. Maybe they would uh, renovate a certain part of it or whatever. But that's where this man and his bride were going to live. And they were going to live in the father's house. And when the father died, of course, then that man would be the inheritor of that house. And he would be the father and all of his descendants would call it the father's house. I think that that's what Jesus is making reference to. There's one house that we're going to. It's the Father's house. And you and I are invited into the Father's house as family members, not just guests, not strangers. This is not just a benevolent person showing hospitality to a traveler. This is the patriarch of the family, a big family. It's got to be a big house. And he has made a dwelling place for you and a dwelling place for me and all of his children and we get the privilege of living forever in the patriarch the supreme patriarch's house our father's house and Jesus said it's my job to go and to prepare a place for you now some of the old songs and some of the not so old songs they picture Jesus as being in heaven and uh, you know that's why he was a carpenter and a carpenter's son on earth he's up in heaven and he's got his toolbox out and he's got his uh, power saws and everything and he's up there and you can hear him building mansions well I think when you read everything in the Bible about Jesus heavenly ministry I don't think he's up there building mansions in fact he created the universe with a word that's no problem for him to make mansions or dwelling places, however you want to look at that, for us. I think what you find here is the idea of preparation is, how did Jesus make it possible for unworthy sinners like us to be able to come into heaven? Someone said that heaven is a prepared place for prepared people. There had to be preparations made so you and I could be welcomed, in, welcomed into heaven. Well, what were those preparations? Well, the first one was Jesus had to leave earth in his glorified body, and he had to go to heaven because he is, in the book of Hebrews, the captain of our salvation. Now, the word captain there can also be translated trailblazer. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus made a roadway for us to go to heaven when we die. And that's why when Paul says, absent from the body and present with the Lord, how do we get there? Well, Jesus is the way. He's blazed the trail. He's the captain of our salvation. That's the first thing. The other thing that we find that when Jesus got to heaven, if you read in the book of Hebrews, it says that he took his own blood and he put it in the mercy seat. Now, not the mercy seat that was on the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem, but the mercy seat that is in the real temple, and he goes to the real mercy seat and puts his blood as the sacrifice on the mercy seat for us. It's an eternal sacrifice. And so when we come to heaven, we are welcomed into heaven just as Jesus is welcomed. Why is that? Because he prepared the way for us. He prepared heaven for us with his own sacrifice with his own blood, out of his own love, and out of his mercy 
for sinners like us. It's really a beautiful and wonderful picture of this holy God who made a way for unholy people to live with him for eternity. And of course, we know about all of the process of giving us a glorified body one of these days at the rapture and uh, all of that, but we won't go into that. We'll just focus on this. I go to prepare a place for you because if the blood is not there, if it is not on the mercy seat that really matters, then you and I don't have any right or any welcome or any way to go to heaven. But because of what Jesus did and what he did for us, we can go to heaven when we die. And not only that, but these verses tell us about a time when Jesus is coming back. I don't think this is a reference to Jesus showing up whenever we die because I don't picture Jesus getting up off of the throne and going to people's bedside in a hospital or a hospice facility or something like that every time something happens. I think this is a reference to his literal second coming when he comes back to earth and he is going to receive us first in the rapture and then later come back to rule and to reign. And the whole purpose is that he wants us to be with him and he will be with us. In the meantime, we have the Holy Spirit. How is Christ with us now through the presence of the Holy Spirit? He's at the right hand of God the Father and he sends his Spirit to come and to be with us and to live with us all of this time. And that is bringing us to the second point. In John chapter 14, verse 16, it makes reference to Jesus sending the Holy Spirit. And he says, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. Who is this? Verse 17, The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Will be, that's a future thing. Will be not just around you or upon you, but in you. And he says to end this section, I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. Now, Isn't that interesting? He said, I'm going to go and I'm going to be preparing a place for you and I'm going to ask the Father, he's going to send the Holy Spirit He's going to be with you and he's going to be in you. And Jesus says, and I will be with you. The presence of the Spirit of God, because he is God the Spirit, he's not just a third string or third rate God, he's not just a cheap substitute. This is God himself that comes to live with us. And Jesus is telling us here that the presence of the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus living with us. It's just like he's here with us, even though bodily he's at the right hand of God the Father. Because God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are unified. They're co-equal in their nature and attributes. And to have one is to have all, isn't it? And so Jesus gives us this wonderful promise. I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. You're not just left alone to make it on your own. You're not abandoned. You have me because you have my spirit, the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I have to go in order for you to receive the Holy Spirit. Let's look at another passage of Scripture. In John chapter 16, verse 7, uh, it's amplified just a little more. Jesus is speaking and he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. 
For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. We are ambassadors for Christ and we give the, the news of conviction and judgment because we proclaim truth and truth always confronts the error, the sin. And that brings conviction of the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit is also the one that gives life and gives faith and draws people to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the same Spirit in us. It works in the world through us and He works, I said it, He works through us to also bless us and comfort us. He's the comforter. He's the helper. All of those words refer to the Holy Spirit. Jesus ascended so that you and I could have the Holy Spirit. Now the question comes up, do all Christians have the Holy Spirit? Because there are some that teach that only certain Christians receive the Holy Spirit. But Paul clears that up. He says in Romans chapter 8 that if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. In other words, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. If you are a Christian, it's because you have the Holy Spirit. All of us have the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. Jesus ascended to the Father so that he could send back the other helper, the Holy Spirit. Here's another thing to think about. The third thing about the ascension is that uh, Jesus ascended so that we could do greater works than he did. That's kind of an astounding statement. But in John chapter 14, verse 12, let's quote Jesus again. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, that's you, you're a born-again believer, right? I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these will he do because I go to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now notice how Jesus ties this fact that we are going to do the works of Jesus while we're on earth. Not necessarily the miracles, but the works of Jesus. Preaching and teaching and loving and caring and serving and ministering, all of those kind of things. And he said that you're not only going to do these things, which only makes sense because when we're born again, we receive the nature of God. And whenever you have the nature of something, you have the likeness of something, the tendencies of something or someone. And uh, that's why we see the bloodline and the DNA in a family. There are certain family characteristics, not just physical features, but the way someone may talk or the way that they act or the way that they express themselves or things that they love or things that they're good at. It, it's passed on. That nature is given. And when we receive a new nature in Christ, we become like our Lord. He's our older brother. And so as we live here on earth, people are going to see common characteristics between us and our father, between us and our older brother, between us and the Spirit of God that indwells us. The fruit of the Spirit is going to come out of our lives. Now Jesus says 
that not only that, but you're going to do greater works than he did. Now, how am I supposed to take that and interpret that? What are we down here trying to compete with Jesus and outdo Jesus? We could never do that. What I take it to mean is when Jesus came to earth in the incarnation, an eternal omnipresent God locked himself into a body. And Jesus in a human body was only one place at a time. When he was teaching by the Sea of Galilee, he was not teaching in the temple. When he was throwing out the money changers in the temple, he was not at the Sea of Galilee telling fishermen how to catch more fish. When he was at the Sea of Galilee, he wasn't healing lepers in another place. When he was in Galilee, he wasn't in Judea. See what I mean? Like us, locked in time and space and flesh and a body. Well, he is eternally in that. There is a human being sitting by the right hand of God the Father, that seat of power and authority. A human being with nail prints in his hands and in his feet. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gave up, you read Philippians chapter 2, he gave up all the prerogatives of deity in order to become flesh and blood for, uh, to be our sacrifice. And when he ascended, he ascended bodily into heaven and he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. So now how is Jesus going to be everywhere, working in all kinds of people, working in all kinds of places all over the world right now in ways we can't even imagine? And he does that by sending the Holy Spirit. And so believers indwelt by the Holy Spirit have the presence and the power and the authority of Jesus whether they're in India right now or whether they're in Oklahoma City, whether they're in your living room watching this or whether uh, it's someone like me here at the church house giving this message. Wherever we are and whatever we do, greater things are taking place because Jesus, as one God-man, is seated at the presence of the Father. His Spirit is working through all of us all around the world, greater works are being done. But will you notice that he ties it to prayer? You and I are supposed to pray. You and I are supposed to be the ones that fellowship with him. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the cry of the heart of the person who is saved. Our prayer life is not just to get whatever we want, even though he gives us a promise here, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do uh, for you. What does it mean to ask in the name of Jesus? Does that mean if I were to stand here today and say, okay, Father, I want a Ferrari and I want $50 million and I want it in cash deposited into my account today and I demand this in Jesus' name? Now, there are some people that kind of teach you to do that. Do we boss God around? Are we the ones that are supposed to force his hand? Is God the kind of God that says, I would do this for you except you didn't say the right phrase? You didn't say it just right? What, what's going on here? Well, in the name of Jesus is more than just a slogan or a cliche or a way to end a prayer. In the name of Jesus means lining up with the will of Jesus. When you ask it in my name, for example... If I were to say, Dear Lord, I pray that you would allow the influence of Graceway Baptist Church to go out to millions of people 
with the gospel of Jesus Christ, with ministry and uh, service, all of those kind of things. And I ask this because I believe it to be your will. I believe it to be in line with what your word teaches. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. Our hearts are agreeing with God. Our hearts are lined up with the will of God as expressed in the word of God. Now, if you were to turn it around and say, I'm sick of my husband. I'm sure some of you are. And so, Lord, I'm asking you for a new husband in Jesus' name. Okay, now if you take the idea that in Jesus' name means I get whatever I want, then you're going to get a new husband. But that doesn't sound right or seem right according to the Word of God, does it? You see, if we could take what we pray, I want a new husband. I'm sick of this guy that you gave me. And I ask this because in Jesus' name, I believe it to be the will of God as expressed in the Scripture. Now all of a sudden, we have an illegitimate prayer and we realize that, don't we? And Jesus is saying that through this, we're going to do greater works. We can endure things we never thought we could endure. We can go places we never thought we could go. We can do things we never thought we could do. I'm sure that if you had asked the Apostle Paul before he you know, was saved, could you suffer the way that you suffered? And he probably, as a wealthy man, as a man who had Roman citizenship, as a man who was a part of the sect of the Pharisees and a highly educated man, he probably would have said, I could never do that. I could never live like that. And we know he would have said, I could never be around Gentiles like that. Oh, but you can do all of those things when the Holy Spirit comes into your life. And you are empowered by him to do whatever the will of God is for your life. And so Jesus is saying, don't just exist and don't just live your life. God has a plan and God is working and God has gifted you and God has empowered you. And as you are praying and as you are surrendering your heart to the Lord, there are things he is going to do because he wills to do them through you that you never thought you could do. And you can do the works of Jesus and be a part of Jesus' kingdom as he does greater works through his people than he did on earth. That's pretty exciting. Kind of makes you want to pray a little more, doesn't it? And be thankful for the Spirit of God who lives within you. And the fourth thing that uh, we have is Jesus ascended so that we could have his presence with us at all times and all places. Now I want to jump out of John 14 and I want you to think about Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Here's the command. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Okay, you've already given me an impossible, an impossible task on my own. You've already given the disciples something. I mean, they were scared to death to testify of Jesus Christ after his crucifixion, remember? That they hid. Peter denied him. And uh, how are we going to go out and evangelize the whole world, especially in their day? How was that going to happen? And Jesus said, I not only want you to go and tell all of the nations, these Gentiles, these pagans, all of these, but I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't even stop there. Now you're to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. How are we going to do that? How in the world do we get this unfinished task ever, ever to be completed? 
He gives us the secret when he says, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, the fact that he's going to always be with us, how is Jesus with us? We've already seen through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And notice here that he did not intend for this only to be for those disciples. How do I know that? Because he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Hey, folks, every one of those disciples died. Does that mean the promise ended? Does that mean that Jesus is no longer interested in this task being fulfilled? And then how can he be with us to the end of the age? Because this command is not just for the disciples, is it? It's for every believer in Jesus Christ. All of us have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. We've received the Holy Spirit to indwell us and to indwell us permanently. And everywhere Jesus is preached, everywhere Jesus is proclaimed, everywhere Jesus is testified of, even if it's just you giving a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus. Where is He? He's with you because of the Holy Spirit. Why do we have the Holy Spirit? Because Jesus went and prayed that the Father would give us the Holy Spirit so that greater works could be done here on earth now than were ever done during the time when Jesus walked on earth. That's astounding. And why does that happen? Because Jesus went to heaven to prepare a place for us. And how did he prepare a place for us? With his own blood. Behold, what manner the Father what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called the sons of God, the children of God. And the children of God are heirs of God. Remember what Paul said? And as heirs of God, we are joint heirs with Christ. He shares it with us. And what does all of this mean? It means that you and I are citizens of the kingdom of God, as we talked about last month indwelt by the Spirit of God to do the works of God, even greater works, and to know that He is always, always with us. And when the time comes for our life to end, the task won't end. It'll go on and on in generations that will come after us until Jesus returns. And where do we go? Absent from the body, present with the Lord, in that place prepared for us in the Father's house. Makes me glad to know that I serve a risen Savior who went to the right hand of God the Father so that we could enjoy all these magnificent privileges of the grace of God in Christ. I want to thank you again for listening to this and we'll look forward to having our Sunday school classes together. But until then, we'll just keep on doing what we do and trust God to bless it and to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think that uh, Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 promises us. And as you continue to give, as you continue to contact one another, and as you continue to serve, as you continue to reach out to other people, do it in the name and the power and the blessing of Jesus. And may the Lord bless you and bless you richly. You are loved.